Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor Karina Keskitalo, who is Professor of Political Science at Umeå University in Sweden. Her main research is on environmental policy, including most notably climate change adaptation. And as a science advisor, she was previously vice chair of the Swedish National Expert Council for Climate Change Adaptation, And she's also been one of the seven chief scientific advisors to the European Commission. Finally, she's recently published a book called The Social Aspects of Environmental and Climate Change that discusses some common misconceptions in both research and science advice on those topics. So, Karina, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. So, I mean, you research environmental policy and climate change. Obviously, that has a big overlap with policymaking anyway. But your book goes beyond those areas to talk in quite a lot of depth, actually, about science advice more generally. What's going on there? So why I wrote wrote the book. Yeah, why you wrote what you wrote. (laughs) Right. No, I think it's actually, I mean, stuff for this book I've been gathering for 15, almost 20 years um, and started writing some of the parts which eventually now are parts of the book. Yeah, from that time, basically. As smaller articles and and I think it's from a lots of lots of own experience and others' experiences. Um, I mean, also in a very early large EU project I was part of, um, we were a very small social science contingent. Um, I was asked to do um, sort of stakeholder communication and stakeholder interaction, and that was not at all in my area. I wanted to do to do interviews and social analysis. And I said, no, but we don't know what that is. You should do stakeholder interaction. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and I've found in actually several projects and experiences after that, people in social science are asked to do stakeholder communication, um, not contribute actual science, uh, but do the interaction with stakeholders because they are supposed to provide the social information. And one would almost think that this doesn't happen anymore, but it does happen <laughs> now and then and again. You know, the idea that, basically what is the linear model of science advice, that only science, natural and technical science, has the actual science. The stakeholders in policy or wherever are supposed to be interested in this and be able to ask the questions or get the communication. And then they are supposed to change based on this knowledge. And of course, this is not how it works. (laughs) One needs social science to actually figure out what are the interests and drivers and motives of different actors in order to maybe develop incentives for change. Right. Great. Well, there's tons to talk about there. Um, Just to get off on the right foot, though, could you uh, tell us a little bit more about this linear model that you want to kill? What is it exactly? (laughs) No, right. No, it's not so much that I, you know, I want to kill it. Um, And it's been shown in lots and lots of research that it doesn't work the way this linear model of scientific knowledge sort of assumes. It's a basic assumption and it's sort of, you can see it still, I think in both science advice and in large projects, um, in assumptions on you know what is needed in different scientific projects. Um, and it's basically the idea that, that you have some kind of knowledge. And this is regularly then in this assumption of the linear model, natural science and technological knowledge, because the assumption has also been that knowledge on the social, humanistic type areas 
that would sort of contaminate the clarity of this. It could include things like interests and things. Um, so instead, there should be knowledge on the natural and technological world in the assumption of linear model. Um, you have political actors who are assumed to demand this uh, technological and natural scientific knowledge. It, it is supposed to be supplied directly, that it flows directly from science into practice and it's used directly uh, by decision makers and produce rational solutions. And everybody should be able to understand, uh, like formulate a question, understand it immediately and provide it immediately also to stakeholders which are outside or the ones asking the question. And then there's assumed to use it directly. You know, this the knowledge, knowledge shouldn't be altered by the policy process or any practical considerations and basically make change, make immediate change. That's the assumption. And the thing is not to, you know, kill it. <laughs> the idea is more that it doesn't work this way. It's already dead. It's an in incorrect assumption uh, for the reasons that, you know, um, knowledge is has to include knowledge on all the issues that are relevant to a question asked and social issues not contaminate knowledge per se. It can instead say provide information on specific interests and where certain things might work or might not work or what incentives might be more useful for anything one wants to do in relation to different actors. But that doesn't per se contaminate, it just provides more information. And that has to be, of course, recognized in the linear model then. Uh, it also precludes saying that all sciences are equally important, I mean, depending on what the issue is. And it also sort of precludes the, the, the problem that, you know, you can't just communicate knowledge very clearly uh, to anyone in the same terms and have them understand it and then include it in their everyday life or in decision making. Because decision makers maybe have different goals and what they can do at any certain point in time. And so may so will individuals, you know. So I think that's the that's the basic issue with the linear model, which I discussed in, in this book, and which lots of people have discussed before. All right, great. So there's a few things there, I guess. I mean, one you brought up is this idea of ranking the sciences somehow, or if not the sciences themselves, then ranking the knowledge they produce. So you have natural sciences at the top and social sciences and humanities somewhere further down in terms of their usefulness or objectivity or whatever. Um, but then there's this other element which I find interesting where, according to the linear model that you described, social sciences kind of are recognized as useful. It's just that their role is somewhat brutally cut down to just basically knowledge transfer. You know, the natural sciences produce the answers, then the job of the social scientist, your job, is just to do the stakeholder engagement at the end to get people to take those answers on board somehow. So you become the interface between, as it were, the proper science and, and the grateful recipients. And that rules out any suggestion that social sciences and humanities might produce knowledge that's important and valuable in itself. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And I think this is actually... It's good that we acknowledge now that this is a misconception because it really is. And it's actually discussed in this book as an undead model. It's been disproven <laughs> time and time again, but it keeps coming back. This idea that real science is actually the natural science and technologies, and it should be possible to get the real science knowledge and communicate it to stakeholders or stakeholders should ask it. And then when the stakeholders get it, then they immediately should internalize it and change. And this comes back in different cases, not uh, always as hard pigeonholed as 
as you said. So, and of course, it is a misconception, and it's great that we now recognize it. But it's often an assumption also among people that different sciences have different importance. Uh, instead of thinking, okay, but what is the problem and what is most useful for this particular problem? Yeah. And another part of what you said is this idea that stakeholders are just like passively or even excitedly sitting there waiting to be told what to do. You know, they all recognize their knowledge gaps. And then when the scientists fill those gaps, then they can run off and change the world. I, I have to ask, and no doubt rather simplistically, what exactly is the problem here? Is the problem that stakeholders are not motivated like that they aren't they aren't like anxiously awaiting knowledge or is it that they are motivated enough but then the systems they're part of make it hard for them to put knowledge into practice in a straightforward way well all of the above i guess <laughs> okay <laughs> no but i mean this is the main thing i mean even now in the gcsa group of chief scientific advisors that i'm still working a bit for we've had lots of discussions on food and of course assumptions are quite often that, you know, consumers can change. We can change consumers, whereas in fact, consumers are part of a very big system. I mean, you have to sometimes buy cheap food. And sometimes when you shop, you're in a rush and then you take stuff that you see very quickly, which is advertised on the front of the shelves <laughs> very easily, or maybe where you are supposed to exit. Um, if you shop when you're really hungry, maybe you buy not the healthiest food, um, if you shop for specific occasions, you're basically assumed to have the food for these occasions. It doesn't matter if it's expensive or not healthy. And, and basically, one has to understand all these impacts on people's, in this case, food environment that motivates them or requires them to do certain things. And some things which are routinized, um, like we buy this because we haven't really thought about doing something else. And this happens to all of us, scientists or anyone. We all operate in these type ways. So basically, it's about understanding not just the things that any stakeholder would say if you ask them, because people would say, yeah, of course, I try to shop healthy, <laughs> you know, but you have to understand what actually drives their behavior in terms of routines and time and the sort of structure in which people do things, which for the shopper in this case might be the supermarket and prices. But if you work in, uh, I know I've looked at forestry at some uh, cases myself. There's also the system who contacts you on selling. Yeah, what are the prices? What are the sort of assumptions on how you use land? What are the motivations? How does the larger driving system work? You know, all of these things, which are sort of practices, not just knowledge and learning, which you can get communicated immediately, but the full context, which actually then is the major determinant, not any new knowledge which you get which would have to slot into this system and work with you, what you already know to really be motivating. And sometimes you also need incentives to really drive them people's action. Think about what can be made cheaper or subsidized or what should actually be more expensive or, yeah, or how can you actually change the behavior of these other actors in the system. So all these type of things you really have to think about if you want to, to get change. And that's basically social, social issues, social, economic and political. Okay. I want to bring you back to something you said a little earlier about the motivations behind the linear model, why it exists, why it is, as you say, like some kind of lumbering undead monster that won't stay in its coffin. Because it seems like it does have some basically good positive life force powering it. I mean, this idea of wanting objectivity, want to separate the knowledge from the implementation to like keep the science 
I think you said to not let the science get changed along the way, right? So I take your point that the linear model doesn't work, but how much of those noble intentions, if you agree that they are, can we preserve? Like, does a functioning science advice uh, process have to give up on the independence of facts from policy intentions, this conceptual firewall between the question and the answer? Yeah, but for instance, the group achieved scientific advisors case, then obviously there's knowledge that is wanted, um, but then we communicate actually with the people asking the question, because sometimes questions also include things which might not be possible to answer scientifically by any type of science. It might be, you know, a very lay or different question where, you know, the assumptions on science or other than science can deliver. So then actually we are changing the information they are after by saying, you know, we can supply this. And also in the process, science changes the question by saying, you know, we can supply this type of information, but not that. And then that is supposed to go back to policymakers um, in a way they can understand. So, you know, one has to also see that knowledge isn't one thing. You know, it has to be packaged. So it is per se already not just not being changed, but qualified. Like, oh, if you used in this situation, we have knowledge from maybe national level in these countries, but not from these other countries. So we basically don't know. So if you want to use this at EU level, you know, we, we do not know per se. Um, and also the objectiveness I mean, often in social sciences, we talk about intersubjectivity. Um, so, of course, the objective, and if we know, I mean, for some things, of course, in natural science, we know very clearly. Yeah, climate change, and, you know, it's a risk that we, do, we might not know all details, but we still know we need to work on this. Um, and then how to do it. I mean, maybe you can't get objectivity in social science in the way that you can almost never get a solution that all parties agree on. If you look at, for instance, policy analysis and what could be done on a certain issue in relation to different interests. But you can get into subjectivity on, for instance, at what different authors or different uh, actors see as, you know, this is something that could be done or is something that is workable. And also that process is not super different maybe to when you have, when you speak with stakeholders later on and present these type of uh, propositions um, and get then maybe feedback. Uh, and people will almost never entirely agree, but you might be able to intersubjectively find that, you know, there's still some things you can go ahead with. Mm. So we need to be more sophisticated than just finding better ways to pipe knowledge through to stakeholders. I mean, well, see, I presume that advocates of the linear model, I don't know if there are any explicit advocates, but still, even people who disagree with you would recognize that there are, of course, difficulties and complexities in implementing science advice in the real world, right? I mean, that's the reason why they hire the social scientists at the end of the process, like you described, to do the stakeholder work. They feel like they know what needs to happen on paper, but they just can't figure out how to make it happen in real life because, you know, people are complicated and the world is complicated. It makes you wonder whether instead of throwing out the whole idea of the linear model, starting with the science and then moving later to the real world, you could just get better at that last part, better at the stakeholder engagement, understanding what they need. Could that work or is it not enough? I guess that has to be more fundamental because the thing, like the, the sort of system I just tried to describe, is a lot about that you can't just ask people. Like for instance, you can't ask, you know, how, why don't you buy stuff? More, more healthy and eat better 
you know, then people just go, oh, they feel a bit blamed or they say, yeah, I intend to or something. So some, some things, even if you were to think out really good questions, and of course, this is a lot of what social science does doing interviews, but then it's very thought through when you really try to analyze and find these other motivating issues without, for instance, blaming. I mean, you really have to go into people's motivations and understand this bigger system. And then you can't always ask direct questions. I mean, some of the things which are not... Um, maybe positive for an individual to say about themselves. They might not say, <laughs> for instance. I mean, if all people would agree that, you know, basically, of course, we should work on climate change. But it, but they also know that, well, there are some things we can't do in, yeah, in where we work right now. They might not entirely necessarily say that. I mean, in, in one project, we did interviews with people who work on climate change adaptation in a specific sector. And some of them, because they knew that we weren't going to publish or made, make available their interviews. I mean, some people there said that, you know, I work with this in this authority or this sector. Um, I really feel that my job is basically greenwashing. <laughs> and obviously this is things people can't say if they know that their bosses or someone will hear that and may, may, may be connected to themselves. But they want to say it because they want it out there because they might fundamentally want their job to be very useful and be able to work on stuff, climate change, adaptation, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Do you have an example of where this process, this non-linear process has worked or is working well with the social science and humanities being involved in the right way? Well, I guess the example I just gave with the group of chief scientific advisors, that's of course why I've been involved as well, because if you actually have it working this way, it can work well. And also because there you do have social science and humanities involved, not just in any type of stakeholder capacity, but an, in a science capacity. And then, of course, it very much opens to getting that information in at, at all instances where it's relevant. So, for instance, with foods that we discussed at an earlier point, there were also, I think, in some cases, assumptions that, OK, but now we will have a natural science group that looks at, you know, how can we get more, better food out of certain systems? Um, and then me and others, you know, also said that, yeah, but if it's about how to do that, it's also a social science question. So sometimes it's not that people have a thought that, you know, social science and humanities isn't crucial, but, you know, they might not have thought about that it might be as well. <laughs> so the assumption is sometimes towards natural science and technology. And I think actually Group of Chief Scientific Advisors does important work to correct that, to actually get um, all relevant sciences in to answer all questions so that you really think what is the question and, and what does it cover instead of assuming that it's a, so, some specific types of sciences so i think this is really really crucial yeah well i mean okay i mean correct me if you disagree but it seems to be that social sciences are going to be pretty essential to any science that has an aspiration to affect the real world which basically means any area of science advice no no i would agree Natural science really can contribute the what in a way that social science maybe can't, you know. We we need what is the problem? Well, the problem is that we have a depletion of fish in the sea or a depletion of biodiversity. It's fallen by this and that much over so and so long. And we have these risks and uh, climate change is uh, increasing so and so much. You know, all of this are basically natural science type questions. But then what do we do about it? Then the how, that immediately becomes a social science question. 
because then it becomes a question not just about, okay, we obviously need to <laughs> have a lower degree of climate change. We should keep it under 1.5 degrees. But how do we do that? Then it's about the incentives. Um, if you look at different systems, you know, how can you incentivize national actors? It's not just they sign an agreement. How can they work to incentivize local and regional levels? And then you really really to understand the systems and the how, then it becomes a social science question as well. And to actually a pretty large extent, a social science question. Yeah. And I guess it's more complicated even than that sounds because, I mean, okay, so what then goes to how and then how goes to which policy instruments, which incentives or whatever, but that's still kind of linear. And I guess it isn't linear even here, which, which maybe is your point, because with something as big and complicated and self-feeding as the climate and climate adaptation. It's not like you can send your natural scientists home once they've told you what the problem is, because we need natural science to come up with solutions to, like what solutions will actually have the effect we need, reducing the temperature rise or whatever. And equally, we need social science to steer and propose and lead on what solutions are possible in terms of actually being capable of being put into practice. So it's like a conversation the whole way along. Yeah, sure. In this book, uh, I look at, for instance, this linear model of scientific knowledge, how it's been practiced. I look a bit at uh, yeah, the IPCC report, um, where sometimes social science has been treated more as you know discrete features, blanket terms, it's opportunities and barriers, which sounds like then they can be removed. It's been often a focus on lower community levels for change with some kind of assumption that you can get change more bottom up than top down which is not entirely <laughs> certain, you know. And often it's been a focus on that if people just get the right knowledge, they will change. So like a focus on learning and knowledge sharing. I mean, then you really need to get lots of social science in to correct this assumption. In this book, I also quote, I think it's Oland and Sovakol, and Sovakol who have done studies, I think, uh, yeah, a person who worked on energy, and felt that it didn't really get uh, a focus in the regular energy journals, which were largely social science, who noted then that this has been underappreciated in contemporary energy studies, with only 20% of authors with training in any social science discipline on writing on energy, only 0.3% of authors with discipline affi affiliations in basically social science areas, only 5% of citations in social science humanity areas, and then they also did a study saying that only 0.12% of funding for mitigation research internationally was awarded to the social sciences, so less than 1%. And this, of course, then says something on, I think, the, the gravity of, you know, there's actually not so much focus on the how, there's still some kind of assumption that, you know, people should basically change because we now know we should. <laughs> I think in this book, I quote also some people who have the uh, understanding that, you know, one reason why there's been climate deniers is to some extent that the focus has been so much on is there climate change or not. If we were to get more social science in, then people could instead quarrel about the suggested solutions. <laughs> because then, then we would have left behind the idea of is there climate change or not. Then there could be ideas on, oh, we should implement this or that policy or these kind of changes, or they should be made more expensive. And then people will certainly quarrel on that. <laughs> <laughs> so people are always going to argue, but please let's give them something constructive to argue about. Yeah, 
for instance, I mean, and now it's so embedded, this idea that, you know, is the climate change or not? But we certainly do know with great scientific evidence that there is. <laughs> so now it's really time to move to the solutions part. Uh, and of course, people already see energy and all sorts of things, food getting more expensive. And yeah, so it's certainly time to, to act now on the how and on the incentivi incentivization and understanding the systems that have not made this possible for us to change. I think Al Gore said or wrote in one of his works that he thought even for 20 or it was 30 years ago that, oh, but this, this, we will fix this. You know, we will understand this is an important issue and fix it. So what are the things that, that, that hinder us? And how can we, as policymakers or wherever we are, work with it? And not necessarily in a bottom-up way, because it's really hard to ask the individuals to do these changes. But how can we work also in, in larger systems? Okay, great. So, Karina, we've, we've been around the houses uh, with a lot of this, but I think it might be useful just to kind of sum up what you think is the alternative to the linear model. Do we have a model to replace it with? Yeah. Well, firstly, it doesn't work. So it's not really looking at an alternative. It's looking at how do we do this better without having these assumptions. And, of course, then it's about you know really thinking what are the sciences and knowledge which is relevant to any specific question to not assume that people like stakeholders will be able to change their <laughs> the way they uh, live <laughs> just due to getting more knowledge, to not assume that, you know, knowledge and learning is the way to really get people, individuals to change because there's so much else um, in their lives, which, you know, then you have to look at incentives and different things. Um, and to also know that knowledge is to a large extent an issue of power. I mean, social knowledge. So if we really want to know how to get change, you know, in the world, we then really also have to look at power relations. What are the different actors that determine certain areas? Does maybe law or policy work in different ways? Often it's been developed in a national um, system, for instance, preferencing different actors, because these have been of national interest or export. Uh, and it's been, played a large role for export funding coming into the country. Or so there might already be injustices in, in policy and legislation or the preference uh, areas where we now think about it more as, you know, these are areas where overuse of, of resources is maybe supported. And this, I think, you can probably find in most uh, countries' cases. of, And then really to do institutional analysis of power relations. And these become then huge issues which are almost never covered clearly in climate change adaptation debate or taken up as large you know, issues. And these are the things I think people can potentially really quarrel about. And instead of quarreling about <laughs> proven <laughs> things, you know, and instead, uh, you know, discuss, OK, so how do we change these systems? And of course, this will be researchers, often social scientists discussing this based on, okay, but what does legislation look like right now? What kind of interest does it preference? Um, what other actors are involved? How could this potentially be shifted towards more sustainable use? And here people will have numerous and enormous amounts of understandings, and there will be enormous amount of interest groups. But then at least you move the issue from one where you assume that, well, you can just communicate knowledge and get change to one where it's really a debate on the actual practical issues and policies and legislation and so on that 
needs to be changed or strategies. So I think that's just, it's not a, a great answer in the way that this is long term. It takes a lot of resource to get these answers. It may be numerous actors, of course, who don't want to implement them, but at least then one moves the discussion away from, you know, more simplified assumptions to really the, yeah, the key matter of, of change, if this is what we're talking about. Mm. I find that intriguing. I mean, there's, there's one thing that I hadn't really appreciated before this conversation is not just the role of social sciences in contributing knowledge and you know achieving what you want to achieve but also this sort of tactical role in shifting the debate like i mean if you, what you're saying is if you only throw in the natural science the hard facts and expect people to take them on board that's what becomes the contested territory whereas if you include the measures to be taken and how we should respond and, and so on you can in a way like move beyond the boring argument about what we know to be true anyway and and move the battle into more constructive territory i like that pragmatic angle yeah and this is has been this is of course not me saying this i mean i'm saying it now but i'm quoting or you know referring to people i summarize in this book and I think it's really a crucial contribution. Then it would be a lot about the specific actions or measures taken, which will be hugely uh, socially disruptive, of course, because people will not disagree. But this is basically the the, the general situation of, of policymaking. If this is, of course, then stuff that is done towards policy advice, and it's on the stuff then that politicians still need to do. Um, or, I mean, in areas they want to work, and of course, then they decide what they do or or not, but this this is also the limit of science in any form. You know, you can just supply the knowledge and then you see what is done with it, you know, but yeah, to get the use, then I guess one really needs good models of science advice where one looks at the question, is able to maybe modify the question to make it researchable and provide information to actors that want it. And in other ways, it's actually really, really hard to provide knowledge and really think about, okay, if we want to change individuals, then we maybe first have to change things in the systems. Fantastic. So thank you very much indeed. I've enjoyed some really eye-opening insights here. I mean, you say that you don't want to kill the linear model because it's not living in the first place. It's it's undead. <laughs> um, well, fine. In which case, I hope your book and this conversation nonetheless contribute to the good work of hammering a stake into its heart. I'll link to your book <laughs> in the show notes for the episode, of course. I recommend it to listeners not only as being clear and erudite and well-argued, but also, as we have alluded to, short. So, Professor Karina Cascatalo, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism, and as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good. <laughs>